Well, friends, it's uh, good to be back in the house today. I'm so excited to, to see you all. Uh, I really enjoyed my time here last summer, having a chance to get to know many of you and to do life with some of you. And so I look forward to catching up with, with some of you after today's service. And I uh, would like to also thank Pastor Craig for just the opportunity to come back and, and share a word with you this morning. So I'm not going to keep you too long. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and jump into the message. The, the title of today's sermon is, as you can read in your bulletins, don't take it personal because it was never about you. I should have sit with that for a second. Can I say, don't take it personal because it was never about you. So some of you are probably thinking to yourself, what does he mean? Like, don't take it personal because it was, it was never about me. Why does he always got to say stuff that I don't understand, right? So I'm glad that you asked, good student. So let me explain. I remember that last year, I, I shared with you all that I was born and raised in New Jersey, and I talked about my journey in the ministry called Young Life, right? And in reflection of my childhood, I recognized that I had a blessed childhood, Okay. I was raised with two sisters in a single-parent home, um, and my mother did her best to make sure that she instilled in us the importance of education, hard work ethics. She made sure that by the time we all were, were 14 years old, we, we, we got our first job and we worked hard. Um, and even in the midst of that, like somehow, someway, my mom worked three or four different jobs to provide for us, and we watched her go through the Army, we watched her get her, attain her master's degree and her PhD, okay? And somehow, someway, through all of that, she still would show up to every sports event, every basketball game, every football game, every track meet, right? If I did the martial arts, she was there. Like, any type of recital, she showed up. She was always there. I don't know how she did it, but she was there. And, um, and so we knew very well, all of us, that our mother loved us unconditionally. But in spite of the fact that we came from a great home with a mother that, that taught us well, we still were exposed to a world of brokenness. We were exposed to a life of, of trauma. And so I remember when I was in high school, um, I was about 14 years old, and I, I tried to follow the teachings of the Christian faith. Now, in retrospect, I would say that at that time, the gospel wasn't completely in my heart at that time. Um, I had more head knowledge than heart knowledge. But from what I could understand in a body and a mindset of a 14-year-old, I tried to do what I would have considered to be the right thing. Thing is, is that when tragedy hit our home, I recall asking God, God, why would you allow these circumstances to happen in our lives? How come my friends, whenever they leave school, they're not going home worried about their family, if, they're, if they're, their siblings are still going to be alive, if their mother is still going to be alive. We live their life in, in danger and in survival mentality. And so my friends, they don't have to worry about this. How come I have to go through this? What did I do, Lord? After all, I tried to do the right thing. When I was in the classrooms, I was trying to represent you in front of my peers. I was trying to spread your love to, to my friends. I was trying to set an example of what it means to be a teenager who's on fire for Jesus, and yet and still, you allowed these hardships to come my way. What did I do to deserve this? In fact, you owe me. And so I became greatly not only discouraged, but I became angry, and I took the matters personally because I thought that I was doing the right thing, and yet and still, I didn't feel as if I deserved the things that were happening my way. And so, and so as a result of that, 
I walked away from the faith for a few years, and I lived my life in the world because I took it personal. This kind of reminds me of the 1989 film, many of you know of this, the, the Disney film Little Mermaid, and the relationship between Ursula, the Little Mermaid, Ursula's a sea witch, and the Little Mermaid, Ariel, and King Triton, and how Ursula the sea witch wanted King Triton's power. She already had gifts. She could already perform magic, but that wasn't enough, that she already had her own little posse. That wasn't enough for her. And so she wanted King Triton's power. She wanted his throne. She wanted to wear his crown. And so what she did was literally use Ariel as a, as a pawn to, to get to the father's heart so that way, inevitably, she can then inherit his throne and wear his crown. Or better yet, that also makes me think about the mafia, right? I'm not sure if any of you have seen, I'm sure y'all have seen the, the Godfather or, or Scarface or any type of mafia film where you see that there's usually, whenever the made man is in debt to the, the big boss, what happens if he's in debt? They put a hit on him, right? And so the first person that they go to is who? To attack. Their family. Because they know that that's the closest thing to the made man's heart. So they try to whack them. And so in the story of the little mermaid, right, Ariel and even her boyfriend had every right to take that situation personal. And in the mafia, the made man and his, his family, they had every right if they wanted to, to take the attacks personal if they wanted to, even though it had nothing to do with them, even though they didn't do anything wrong. By all means, if they wanted to blame, if, if, if they wanted to be upset and discouraged because of it, they had all rights to be able to, to do so. And what if I told you this morning that you have an adversary? And what if I told you that you have someone who's out to get you? But his agenda isn't just to merely inflict harm upon you for no reason, but rather his agenda and his posse, they're after you. Why? Because they are jealous of the rights that you have to have a relationship with the Father. You see, this individual had an opportunity to be in a throne room with the Father, and he lost that right and got castrated out to heaven, and so now he's angry. And this individual that I'm talking about is Satan. And so, as Mike Bishop read in the story of Ezekiel, we see this imagery here of Lucifer, which was his name before he got the name Satan. He was in heaven as the, the cherubim angel. Okay, so he guarded the throne room of God. And according to the scriptures, he was beautiful, right? He was adorned and decorated with gold, with precious stones. In fact, he even walked on fiery stones, stones of fire. He was gorgeous, very attractive in his appearance. Not only that, but he also was, was highly intelligent. The scriptures tell us that he was a crafty individual, okay? And then he also, he had musical pipes and timbres and instruments that were embedded into his very being. And so when he moved, when he breathed, music just flowed from out of him, okay? And so for him, it wasn't enough for him just to have this beauty. It wasn't enough for him to have just this keen sense of understanding or an intellect that, was, that, was, that surpassed, surpassed other people. It wasn't enough for him to have musical gifts and skills. But he said to himself, 
I want to be higher than the stars of heaven. And in fact, I not only want to be God, but I want to kick him off the throne and sit on the throne and wear his crown because I myself want to be God. And so as a result of that, the scriptures tell us that the Lord kicked him out of heaven, expelled him from the kingdom, castrated him down to the earth. As a result, he took one-third of the angels with him down to the earth. And so now at this portion of the creation story, everything else in creation is now at stake because of the man who once was the closest to God is now with his posse. He's roaming the earth. And again, his main agenda is now because he no longer can sit close to God. He lost the opportunity to be there. And so he knows that the closest thing to God's heart, if I want to get back at him, because I'm jealous of this God, so I'm going to use his people as a spawn, as a pawn to get to his heart. And so we see this imagery here in the book of Job, in the story of Job, where the devil is roaming throughout the earth, going to and fro, and, um, I'm sorry, <laughs> thank you, he's uh, much better, I might just want to come down here. So, there you go. <laughs> now we're talking. <laughs> so, so he's roaming to and fro in the earth, and um, he, uh, he presents himself to the Lord. He goes up to, to the third heaven, and uh, when he presents himself with the angels, the Lord asks him, says, hey, uh, Satan, where are you going, right? And he said, where have you? Where you come from? I've been roaming the earth, going back and going to and fro, uh, looking for someone to attack for someone to tempt. And uh, so the Lord said to him, well, have you not considered my servant Job, who is blameless? He's upright. He's a righteous guy. Have you not thought about him? And so then the devil responds to God and says, well, of course, it's easy for, for him to follow you when he's been blessed with nothing but, but goodness and prosperity. After all, the devil even understands that if you've lived a good life, that doesn't just mean that your faith has been really grounded and, and rooted. He understands that your faith is solidified through the test of time when you've had to endure through a hardship and you've came out of it on the other side. He understands that very well. And so he doubted that. And so the Lord responded to him and said, well, very well, you are allowed to go ahead and to attack his family and to uh, destroy his possessions, his property, his land, his sheep, his animals, his oxen, his and so Satan fled, and he did just that. He destroyed his, his children, and he took away a lot of his, destroyed a lot of his property and his land, okay? And, um, and so there are a few points that I would like to extrapolate from this passage here in the book of Job. The first one is this. We recognize that Satan has does not have full reign in human affairs. Satan does not have full reign in human affairs. Okay, so Satan can't do anything, as we see in this story, outside of the permission of God, which then brings me to my next point, is that we recognize the sovereignty of God. Again, we recognize the sovereignty of God. And so I, I see this imagery, imagery here as I read this story of an owner 
with his pit bull. And he's walking his pit bull in either his backyard or some type of local park. And while he has him on a leash, he decides to let him go and get a drink of water, drink from the pond, play around in the grass, dance, whatever he wants to do, right? But he says, listen, you can go ahead and enjoy yourself in this sphere here, but do not step outside of the parameters that I, I set for you. You can only go but so far. You cannot go past the fence. And so, so it is with this story where God was the one ultimately in this story that was in control. Satan couldn't do anything without God giving him the, the okay. But what the devil would try to do is try to convince you that he has more power than he actually does. He'll try to convince you that maybe God isn't real. Maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe God doesn't care about me. Maybe God doesn't see my life and what's happening in my world. Maybe he's not here. Maybe he's not present. Maybe, maybe he's far off in the, in the universe somewhere doing his own thing and just left, abandoned us and just left us here to try to figure this life out for ourselves. What I find interesting about this story is notice here how God bragged on Job. It was God's idea for for Satan to be allowed to go ahead and, and attack Job. God said, have you not considered my servant Job? But do not lay a finger on him. And so God believed that because Job was a righteous man, and he believed that because he put his spirit inside of Job, that there was nothing that Job couldn't overcome. Friends, I want you all to think about this for a second. What if I told you that God believes in you? What if I told you that because he, if you are a follower of him, because he put his spirit in you, that you can be more than a conqueror and there's nothing that can overtake you if you trust in him? What if I told you that? Would you believe me? And so, we see the rest of the story unfolding where Job is, is now after having his family taken away from him, his property being destroyed and demolished. We now have this next scene where he's inflicted. The devil appears to the Lord again and asks permission to now physically afflict him, but the Lord tells him, you are not allowed to, to harm his life. You cannot take his life. And, uh, and so the devil inflicts him with sores. And then his friends rally around him and say, what did you do wrong, Job? Right? Because they believe that only the wicked would perish. Only the, the wicked would have to go through hardship. It wasn't a part of their doctrine of that day to believe that the righteous would have to suffer, which was the furthest thing from the truth, but that was a belief that they adopted. And so his wife even came to him and told him, why don't you just curse God and just and die? Just curse the Lord. And so when I look at this story from the perspective of the mother, I don't think that she was an unrighteous woman. I don't, it wouldn't make sense that a righteous man would marry a wicked woman. What I think, though, if we look at this story from the perspective of a mother, that she lost her children, the, the, the very children that she birthed, that she carried in her womb. And so at this point, she's like, okay, I, I, I've had it. We've already went through losing our property and everything else, but now our children? Really? Come on. So at this point, I think the wife even took it personal. And so as the story continues, 
Job then still worships and praises God, but then there's this ebb and flow in the story of worship and praise, but then he begins to question his existence and say, it's better that I wasn't even created than to have been born and have to go through all this hardship. And then he begins to praise God again and says, but God, you, you are the one of all wisdom and power and majesty. It all belongs to you. And then he would transition and go right back into a state of depression where he then asked God, what did I do? I've tried to do the right thing. Why did you allow this to happen? I'm, I'm a righteous man. I'm an upstanding guy. I don't get it. I don't understand. And then God finally responds to Job in chapter 38, where he then tells Job, stand up, brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. And so then for the next couple chapters, we see God asking Job a list of questions about the complexities of the universe. And one of the questions that God asked Job, he said, listen, were you there when I created the Orion's belt? Were you there when I created the morning stars and they, they sang and danced for, with joy? Were you there? Oh, yeah, you were there. Surely you know because you were right there by my side. Did you not know that the, that the lightning reports to me and says, here we are, Lord? <laughs> lightning appearance to God saying, here we are with a report? Did you not know? Did you not know that I could wrap myself with bodies of, of water? Surely you know, Job. And so Job's response to God was that he repented. Because he understood in that moment that, wait a minute, if God has the capacity to be sovereign and engineer all these different complexities and intricacies of the universe with all these different parts of the universe, then how much more is he, will he be sovereign in my situation with the tragedy that hit my home and my property? And so Job then repents and he established a deeper level of trust in God. So my question for you is this, because we see in the story that at the end, Job won, and that the scriptures tell us that he received twice as much as what he had before he went through, and, and the latter part of his life was much greater than the first part of his life. And so I wonder then, what is it going to take for you to, to stop doubting and start trusting? Say it again. What is it going to take for you to stop doubting and begin trusting in God? In other words, what adjustments do you need to make? What plans do you need to put in place? What goals do you need to, to set for yourself to help you orient yourself to a deeper posture of trust in the Father? What does that look like for you? And so for some of you, you may be saying to yourself, well, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like to have a home, for, a home foreclosed. You don't know what it's like to, to have been through three or four marriages. You don't know what it's like to have to manage a marriage, have three or four kids, have property, have a business, have all these things, have all these pressures weighing, caving in on my home. You don't know what that's like. And maybe for some of you, you might be saying to yourself, you know what, my life is not even that dramatic. You might just be discouraged because there was a door that you wanted to walk through, that you anticipated opening for you, and the door closed right in front of your face, and you became discouraged. Or there was a relationship that you wanted to foster, and it didn't work out the way that you thought. And so you took it personal, and you said, wait a minute, like, what didn't I do? Maybe if I did something a little different, if I said this, or if I tried this, or if I, if I wasn't so emotionally absent, then that, that would have turned out different for me. 
You're right. I don't understand what your circumstance is. But I know a God, our God, who does understand and has the capacity to be with you right in the middle of whatever you're facing, whether it's dramatic, whether you deem it to be dramatic or not, he's with you, right? All of us have some circumstance that we'll go through, pressures, stresses, right? We all go through it. We're human. God has the capacity to be right with you as you're going through these things. And so, can I read y'all a, a poem? I love stories. I love poems. Okay. So in closing, would love to read a very famous poem called Footprints in the Sand by Carolyn Cardi, which I'm sure many of you probably heard of before. This is what it says. One night I dreamed a dream. As I was walking along the beach with my Lord, across the dark sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand. One belonging to me and one to my Lord. For the last scene of my life flashed before me. I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the very lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This really troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said, once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times of my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why. When I needed you the most, why would you leave me? He whispered, my precious child, I love you. Never will I leave you. Never ever during your trials and your testings. When you saw only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I come to the house today to tell you this, that you can have the victory, that the fight is already fixed, and that you can be victorious. But as long as you place your trust, your unyielding trust, in the one who is sovereign beyond all measure, you will then be able to look back over the, all the courses of your life and then be, begin to see that in the moments where you weren't able to, trust, to trace God's footprints in your life, that it was then in those moments when he, carried, he picked you up and he carried you through. And then the old saying, the old famous expression that says, and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Shall be true in your life. But you have to trust. And so it's Instead of taking it personal, trust in him. Trust in the Lord's plan. Trust in his love for you. Trust that he has your best interest in mind. And I promise you this, that if you do just that, that you will win, that you will come out on top. I can't promise you a, a greater future here and now. I can't promise you that you're going to be exempt from hardship. I can't promise you that you're not going to go through the fire. But what God does promise you in his word, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He promised you that he will be with you all the way until the end of the age. That is his promise to you. And all he's asking you to do, all he's asking for, the, the only thing he's requiring for you to do in response to this calling is to trust. That's the only thing that you are responsible for. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to make sense and try to understand and, and gain answers to your situation. Notice Job didn't get a, a, an exact response in regards to why he had to lose his children. Yes, God wanted to show him that he was sovereign, 
But Job didn't get an exact answer as to why my children, why my, my land. There are some people who live this life and you'll never receive an answer for a hardship, for something you've seen that was traumatic. You'll never receive an answer for it in this life. But the promise that God gave to all of us is that he will be right with us in the middle of the adversity. All you need to do, my friends, my brother and my sister, is trust in the one who is sovereign. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father and our God, you are wonderful, Lord. We worship you. Hallelujah to your name, (laughs) to the mighty Lamb. You are full of divine majesty. You are the great I am, the Lion of Judah, the is and the was and always will be. Master God, we ask that you help us, Lord. We are weak and we are helpless, but where we are weak, we ask that you help us to trust in you. When circumstances are too big for us, may we not take it personal, but instead, may we relinquish the control and learn to trust in you. Thank you, Daddy, because you care. Thank you that we are rich because our resources are from the kingdom of heaven and because we know that you roll in abundance. We are sure that you will blow our minds every single time, for you never promise us an easy life, but You've promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us and that you would, in fact, be glorified in every aspect of our lives. So please, Lord, do just that and be glorified in every single area of our lives. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This we pray. Amen.